0: You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in both the world of the artist and the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Neville Johnson. Neville was unique in many ways. I'll list the most obvious ones. He's the first five eyes veteran that we've had on the show. He is, uh, certainly the first South African immigrant to the UK, uh, that we've ever had on the show. Uh, being that he currently lives in New Zealand, this was by far the most mathematically challenging show to coordinate when we tried to calculate time zones, uh, and that was an adventure in and of itself. So he, he broke a lot of barriers for us, but it was a blast to talk to him. Um, my God, the life he's had, the things he's seen, the stories he can tell—from uh, a father in the South African Police Force to you know Afghanistan, Iraq, North Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, losing motivation in, the, in Cyprus. I mean, uh, it was a cornucopia of interesting stories that we um, get a little bit more than wave's top levels into. I'm thrilled that he will have a book coming out in the somewhat near future. And we'll have him back on in time for that. But I'm thrilled that we're going to see a lot more of his writing um, all in one place. Uh, I certainly been featured a lot in three separate anthologies by the veterans collective. um, And check out the links below to see what those are about um but I'm thrilled that he's writing uh he's a guy that has a lot to say has an awful lot of life experiences and and of areas and this is I think just kind of part and parcel of not being a US veteran you know he's telling experiences and having a bit of a different perspective than the normal veteran experiences that we hear um which is not to downplay or minimize the average typical, uh, American veterans experience. But it's just to say, this is a, um, this is a nice, uh, bit of, I don't know, plurality in our storytelling to be able to have somebody with his background, come on and share a little bit of his life. He wrote a poem called wrinkled face, which I want to read. He says, my image echoes in the crystal clear water below, a wrinkled face battered by weather and time, lines deeply ingrained with life, grief, happiness, and love. It's a great uh, epitaph, a great benediction for this interview, and hopefully gives you an idea of the depth of experience and the uh, depth of writing that we will talk about in the episode to come I'm Christopher Paul Meyer I'm the Artistic Director of Vet Rep and this is the Savage Wonder of Neville Johnson so attempting to set the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest distance Zoom ever recorded well at least on this show uh, let's not get too grandiose. Neville Johnson, what's up, man? Yeah, hey, yeah. Um, good day. Uh, or good morning from my side. <laughs> right. All right. So it's 18 hours, right? That's the difference between us? 18 hours? 18 hours. Yeah. Last time I checked, it's 18 hours. And uh, how's everything tomorrow?
1: Um, it's another <laughs> quick look, man. It's um, sun just coming up. It looks fine. Uh-huh. It um, looks no. to be um, a good day for you tomorrow. I I look forward to it. Yeah, we
0: should get tomorrow's news today now. I I should just relay that. We should relay that backwards so you can let us know all the world events that are happening tomorrow.
1: I'll I'll be happy to relay any any good news, any bad news your way. Uh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah.
0: So, Neville and I, uh, for everybody listening, uh, this this took a little bit of coordination because I refused to do the math and just pimped it out on Neville. And he was gracious enough to do all the calculations to figure out how to get on, uh, on the show for both of us. So you know where I'd like to start, Neville, is um, I want to read you something that's probably going to sound very familiar. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it's called History. Yeah. My beautiful, ferocious path of life. The path took many twists and turns, but carried on regardless. A life journey carved in beautiful black ink a visual language of joy and happiness, utter desolation and pain, a new awakening with new life and harmony, flesh scarred with peace and tranquility. Is this where we're finding
1: you? Is this you That's now? Where you will find me, yes. Um, if you leave me alone, alone with a pen or a laptop, um, alone to my thoughts and the past, yeah, I will um come up with stuff like that yeah it's yeah deep um yeah, it's, it's quite bizarre um, having someone reading some of the stuff back to me you know um yeah um surreal
0: <laughs> well um that's a good start um let's let's dive into the surreality for a minute so your um life story is and i don't want to generalize so Call me out if this is too broad a sweeping generalization, but it seems like a lot of people from the old British Commonwealth have your kind of itinerant journey. They might leave from Australia and go and travel the world. You were in South Africa, went up to UK, now in New Zealand. So you kind of took that path. Did you find that there were a lot of people like that that were itinerant that crossed your path, or did you were you kind of an anomaly?
1: Within my family, not many, but yeah, there were many South Africans. They would travel um, for many reasons. Mine was just, I just felt like um, it was a small town. Well, it was actually a massive area I'm from, um, but I felt trapped. I felt I want to explore more. I wanted to just travel. I had no plan. I had no plan A, plan B, plan C. I just needed to get away and go experience the world and travel. And initially, it might sound ironic, but I wanted to go to America to make a big there, go to Venice Beach, California, be famous, be a movie star, really? all those things. Wow. Yeah. Be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was very big into bodybuilding, into training, and I wanted to follow that. And someone said, well, go and send your CV to uh, Gold's Gym at Venice Beach, um, call them, which I did. And they replied. And I said, yeah, send us your CV. Which I did. And they replied with, Sorry, but you have to sort out your own immigration issues. Oh, it's going to cost money and all that. And then another friend said, uh, Why don't you go to the UK? Travel up there. It'll be easier to fly from the UK into the States. Back then, I was very naive. And I thought, Yes, I'll do that. You know, travel over to the UK. And, you know, once you go to a certain area, other doors open, or all that. Right. Long story short, I never managed to to get to america but i managed to drill up to uh, the uk um do the normal european tour and somehow stumble into a recruiting office and join the british army <laughs> okay i want to unpack a
0: bunch of that um so first off the wonderlust where did it start from was it because bodybuilding gave you aspirations or uh, you know uh delusions, perhaps, of grandeur that, like, hey, bodybuilding can be my ticket to other places? Or where did that come from? Was it just innate in you? Were you reading literature? Like,
1: well, what happened that made you want to travel? I suppose back then I was um, this very young, naive, quiet, very shy, introvert kid that um, I found um, that bodybuilding was, was the door for me. Bodybuilding was mm. uh, the avenue to go and explore, to, to be myself um to get the confidence, to get the the desire for life. And um yeah, it, it was a dream um to go over there um and 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 make it big. Okay. So were you like watching Pumping Iron and
0: stuff and like, oh yeah, yeah. this is this is like, you know, and you, and in that teenage mind, it's like this is how it's done. This is how I uh, get out. This yeah. is how the world falls at my feet.
1: No, totally, totally. Yeah. Watching Pumping Iron on the old VHS cassette. Um, it was it was a phenomenal experience. It, it's, it's, it's one of those that, you know, you can always look back uh, with fond memories and it will always stick with me and Arnie popping up and, and Franco and Frank saying, all, all the greats, you know, into bodybuilding, you know, and that was the dream. And I kind of now, you know, reflecting back, um, I'm grateful that and happy that it didn't work out that way because going to the UK and working and traveling and then ultimately joining the, the British Army, and then going from there, it opened up other doors to other places. Yeah, um, sure. And yeah, it's been a, a very interesting 20-year
0: uh, journey. I, I want to get the full arc, um, but I'll take it in increments. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> tell us about South Africa. I mean, most people listening probably have not been there. I've, I've, I did 21 months in Africa, but I was never in South Africa. I love the continent. But obviously, the continent's wildly different down by you. Um, so what was that like? What was, what was South, your part of South Africa like?
1: Beautiful, vibrant, uh, unique, um, a unique mix of uh, different cultures. Um, it's an amazing place, amazing culture, outdoors, um, the sun, uh, the people. It's, it's a phenomenal place uh, to go and travel. Were you kind of near? Were you in the, in like a satellite of like Cape Town or Johannesburg, or were you further out in the rural areas? Well, I was born and raised in Johannesburg and then grew up in one of the big suburbs on the outskirts of uh, Johannesburg and then um, grew up there. And then my old man, he's uh, he's ex police, ex African police. Okay. And uh, so he got transferred later in life to the South Coast, more towards Durban. So I'm, I'm not too familiar with, but Durban. But I've heard of to it. The sure. coast. Yeah, there's more okay. to the coast. Um, on myself, I've never been to Cape Town. I've been to Cape Province, but not to the uh, mother city, as they call it. I've never been to Cape Town. But yeah, I would say more so. I'm more like a old city boy. Um, they grew up in, in one of the biggest suburbs on the outskirts of um, Johannesburg. Um, so what is that like? Because I'm guessing that a suburban
0: life in Johannesburg is wildly different than a suburban life in say Manchester or Dallas or oh, yes. any other uh, place. Totally. So totally. so when you say let me let me start with the ethnicity thing. So you said there's multiple ethnicities besides just the two races in in South Africa. Were there other were there expats
1: oh, yes. from other countries? Yeah, there's yeah, there's, there's Indians, Portuguese, uh, French. Um, you've got the um, you know Kiwi, Aussie people that mm-hmm. immigrated. Okay. Um, a lot of Brits immigrated as well made their way down down south. Uh, but and then a lot of other African uh, nationals would then migrate down towards, you know, South Africa okay. because okay. of opportunities and jobs and all that. Because if you look at two, the if you look at the the rest of of Africa, I mean Africa is a massive continent. You know, there's all this other African yeah. countries, you know, it's yeah. third world um countries. You know, they would then migrate down to South Africa for for a better future for jobs and all that. So you've got, you know, um, people from um, Kenya, people from um, Nigeria and so forth, you know, but they were all in your suburb.
0: I mean, that wasn't. So there wasn't. I mean, like, you know, there's good suburbs, and bad suburbs, I'm sure everywhere. Yeah. But for you, you saw like a whole range of socioeconomic classes as oh, well yes, as races
1: right. there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so, a massive area. I was mean, it so safe? I,
0: so. I mean, did you consider it safe or were you consider, if they look at you, they could go, oh, you're from that suburb. Yeah, you're you're hard. Like, what, what was the reputation of your area?
1: Nah, I mean, it it depends where you grew up. depends on, on the accent, you know, because I'm Afrikaans uh, speaking South African. My um, accent, it's it's improved over the years. Um, but yeah, it depends which area you're from. If you're Afrikaans speaking South African, if you're English speaking South African, it uh, depends. Uh, because in South Africa alone, there's eleven official languages. So you've got your Afrikaans and English, and the the is all tribal. So it depends okay, who you, grew sure. up, you would learn that particular. For example, if you if you grew up in or from Durban, which is now known as KwaZulu Natal, you would learn Zulu. Uh, or uh, I grew up in in um, Riripur, which is a uh, one of the uh, bigger suburbs of um, outside Johannesburg, and there it was Northern Sutu. Which I had to learn in high school. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. Apart from Afrikaans and English, you know. Uh, but back then, it was it was different. Um, you know, growing up in a, apartheid South Africa. Yeah. So explain that to, to people
0: like how that was growing up on, under apartheid. And I mean, obviously, we can you know you can talk about it with the benefit of hindsight. But hmm. as a kid growing up under that, how did that? play for you did it i mean what
1: was the impact on you well growing up as a kid you don't know any difference you know you, you grew up in an environment which you uh you believe is right it's good uh yeah it, it was safe and this other is it, it wasn't safe you know mm. but then uh, looking back um you were almost kind of like conditioned to believe a certain thing uh or a certain way but it was a safe environment it was good e- economic um structure was good uh, it was safe um, yeah. but I do remember one particular day when um, I went up the road as a young kid playing outside because we are always told as, as as kids you know out of sight out of mind the grown ups in the house the kids mm. would go outside there was no internet no phones no mobile phones no nothing so you would then go outside play with the neighbours sure. get out there sure. you go and play and I went up the road as this, and there was a, a black family living up there and I Started to play with this um, another kid there, and my dad came out and he said, "I'm not to play with this one particular kid." And um, I had no idea why. I was I was taken back. So I mean, it's just another boy. I just wanted to go and play with him, you know. Right. Right. And it was purely because of the color of his skin. Um, but then you grow up thinking the environment it's it's okay, it's normal. But yeah. then looking back, a lot of stuff that occurred on both sides. It's not normal. You know? it, it shouldn't be in that way, but it, that's the way it was. you know. Um, and I don't want to push
0: you into revisionist history, but how much of that entered your calculus when you left? Did you feel, because obviously you were feeling stifled to some degree, but did the general apartheid situation, did that play a role in it at all? Or was it mostly, hey, I just don't know where I'm going if I stay here?
1: um for me it was just purely i needed to, to to get away um i learned a lot from my old man and and, and my mom and, and my family um as in to you know what's right and, and and what's wrong and and for me um i just knew i had to move away because i felt it was a it was the walls were closing in at one stage and and i had to just get out and i think with growing up in that environment with you know good morals good standards good values uh, and that sort of guided me and helped me um, later in life.
0: So when you decide to go to England, are you going, are you just targeting London? Are you like, let me go right to the heart of the beast? Or or did you know the country well enough to think that a different part of the country would work? What was your What was your strategic plan when you showed up in the UK?
1: Man, to be honest, I had no plan. I just knew yeah. I needed to, to move on. Um, at that stage, back then, it was easy to get into the UK. Uh, I think they wanted £30,000 in your account. But back then, uh, that various um, agents in South Africa, in Cherbourg, they would organize your visa, your accommodation, your job Mm. and everything for you. And you would just pay this person something. So they made quite a a bit of money. And then um, I paid this person and then they would organize a job for you, your visa, your accommodation, flights, everything, you know, and I thought that's my way out. You know, I'm going to do that. Yeah. I end up in it was up somewhere in north England and it was a damn food factory where it was like you know you work from seven to seven, you don't you don't see the sun, you don't yeah. see outside there's no window, this massive big food factory. And and I went straight there, you know, in a big house to share with about 15 other people. Um but for me, I did not mind. That was my way out. That was for me to just to leave the country and just explore and just go and be myself. So
0: how did you feel showing up there? Did you feel like liberated? Were you like the one guy smiling when you're working there canning food or whatever it is you're doing? Were you like, they're like, God damn, how are you smiling every day coming to this job? But you're just like thrilled to be there or did that wear off? Did that burn off pretty
1: quickly? I was happy in the beginning. Um, luckily there with um a bunch of other South Africans there, um, Australians, Kiwis, a lot of mm. Southern Hemisphere people there. And yeah, I was happy as yes. I was a happy kid, happy to be out, moving and working hard, but I knew that was only gonna be for a short while. And yeah. Eventually I left and I went to meet up with a friend of mine in, in Oxford. But then again, I had no plan. I just wanted to go and travel and just get away from, from South Africa. I just wanted to go travel. I wasn't happy with. You know, having just this one particular thing—you marry your high school and girlfriend. You know, you start a family. You've got kids. Yeah, you know, I think
0: yeah, I wanted yeah, yeah. more.
1: And I believe there was more to life than just staying in South Africa. Yeah, but I had no plan whatsoever. I just thought, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on the plane. I'm gonna go. And is and this? Is this the '90s? Is this
0: the carefree '90s? Is no, no,
1: it was in 2000. I left the country okay. in 2000.
0: Okay, yeah, 2000. Um so remember- still the, the tail end of the carefree nineties though. So yeah. so like the yeah. world isn't on fire. There's no impending sense of disaster and doom and gloom and,
1: and all that.
0: It okay. was there was none.
1: It was a carefree. It was it was, you know, uh, you don't care about tomorrow, you care about now. Um you just game with the flow. And how are the workouts
0: coming? Are you still lifting? Are you are you doing do you still consider yourself a bodybuilder at this point,
1: or is that kind of gone by the wayside? Yeah, that's that that's fizzled out. That's that's that that burned out um, at that particular time, you know, in, in my life. You know, um, I ex, I um discovered, um, you know, the party scene, drinking, socializing with with people, meeting other people. I did try, to you know, out a couple workouts here and there, but I, but that dream sort of um, fizzled out. Or well, I think I'm more it was placed on the on the back burner, you know, apart that sort of. That idea of of becoming famous, becoming a movie star like Arnold, you know, going to Venice Beach—I parked that idea, Um, and I thought I'll I'll, I'll look into it um, a bit later on in my life.
0: Oh, okay, but so I mean, because that's interesting because that is a uh, a major derailment of what it seemed like, you know, that initial ambition. But it wasn't really necessarily replaced with a different ambition. It was just sort of because circumstances were changing and you were taking what the defense was throwing at you and you're like yeah i'll go have a drink here i'll go down to oxford meet my friend like you know you're just taking it as it comes that pretty much what was happening. yeah totally yeah
1: totally because it was an experience i've never flown i've never been on a big airplane and as soon as i got into that 747 i thought sweet that's me on and i'm Uh gonna experience more and i still had my my good values my you know manners and all, all those things that I brought with me it just you go there you experience new things you know it, it was me it was okay cool i've got no one there to help me it's um you know i'm by myself I'm so, what's the vibe from
0: locals when they meet you at that stage uh, was there like i mean obviously everyone's immigration story is sort of different but um what was it like
1: for you was it easy to fit in I was good. I, well, I think the only thing I struggled with was, was the accent. You know, I remember starting a different job done in uh, central London. I worked as a personal trainer in, in this uh, health club. And um, the, the boss called me in one day, well, the manager said, listen, you need to work on your accent because a lot of times the people that you train or come into the club, they just don't understand your accent. You know, it, And I had a oh. very heavy South African, Afrikaans accent. And I thought, great, okay, I'll work on it um but otherwise they were fine the locals were, were fine you know they had a big influx of south africans australians and, and kiwis you know traveling there, would do their ticket tour and then going home but right. i had no intention of going home i just wanted to, to travel and i just went with the flow so now you're working at the
0: club um how do you get from there into the military what's that what's that
1: process like well <laughs> if it, if i rewind back you know initially I remember back as a young kid, the one dream I had was to follow my dad's footsteps. He was a um, South African uh, police officer, and um, I always knew and I wanted to be a police officer. Um, it didn't work out that way in South Africa, so I thought, okay, I'll I'll park that idea as well, and I'll 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 just leave it. And I, and um, later after when that didn't work out, um, I became a qualified personal trainer in South Africa, and um, so I. Went over to the UK, worked in a big food factory. And I thought, that's great. I've got my money. I'm going to move back to central London. And I got a job as a personal trainer. And um, the visa I was on was a two-year holiday working visa. Basically, that stage, you can only, for example, work as a a barman, work as a cleaner, and then you travel and you work somewhere else. Man, I work full-time. I thought, if I get through customs, they're not going to know where I am. They're going to track me and place me. I'm going to mm. work full-time. So I took that risk. And uh, so I worked full-time, and that visa came to a close. I thought, heck, what now? And uh, one of the clients that I trained said, go and study. Get a student visa. It's a one-year student visa. And go and study for, for a year. I thought, great. So it means I can stay in the country. Wow. And yeah. I studied for about a month. It was uh, computer studies on a computer program sort of yeah. Man, I did that for a month, and I sucked that, and I went back to working full-time. And then that year almost came to an end. I thought, heck, what now? I thought, how about joining the British police force? And um, I submitted my, my paperwork, and they came back to me with the same old, yes, you qualify to qualified to um, try to go to a recruiting station. However, you've got to sort out your own immigration issues. I thought, i oh, bugger this. And I remember someone mentioned joining the British Army. Because I'm from a, from from South Africa, it's part of the Commonwealth, yeah, which entitles me to, to go. And yep, so then I walked into the into the recruiting office, and I knew I wanted to go into the army, infantry, and um, and I signed up, done a two day course, and then went to basic. And what year was this? It was uh, back in two two thousand and three.
0: So 9-11 had happened. So the wars were on. So you knew exactly what you were getting into. You knew exactly um, what the British army was up to, what its level of involvement was. You were a lot more knowledgeable than somebody that thought they were just getting an easy ride on the immigration status by joining the army and then could get out in due time and
1: just become a normal citizen, right? Oh, yeah, totally. At that stage, I knew uh, about 9-11, but that wasn't my main reason for, for joining. And I remember, right. yeah, watching the towers and everything in, uh, in London, in the um, flat I was in. But again, my ultimate goal was, okay, cool. If I can't join the police force yeah. and follow that's footsteps, I'm going to join you know, uh, the army. But sure. I knew, oh, sorry, I, go ahead. I, I knew bits and pieces about the history, about things within the army. Um.
0: So when you specify that you want to do the infantry though, it seems like you're itching for combat. I mean, you know, there's a war on You want to go to the tip of the spear. Yeah. Um, you're pushing for that. How did you know to ask for the infantry? What, what was that your thought? Like, Hey, I'm going to, I want to see war. I want to see what that's like. Was that kind of your desire?
1: Well, things my my desire was to uh, was to get in, get a job, be in the infantry, and eventually see um, see combat. And um, the recruiting um, personnel said, that, "Listen, yeah, we we've got the second Fusiliers, which is the infantry battalion, your frontline soldiers. We can send you there. They are a light role, which means they move every two years. The whole battalion, the whole um, everyone, you know, packs up and they they move every two years. I thought that's what I want. That's what I want to go." Let's do this. Okay, got you. How do you like the training when you dive into it? Oh, it was full on. I loved it. Yeah. I was the fittest at that stage, man. Um, for me, that stage, um, I was zoned in. I was, I was dialed in. I thought, I'm going to do this. Uh, any bodybuilding dream, any other dreams fell at the wayside. And um, it, was, it was good. I really, really enjoyed it.
0: Were you doing rotations to mm-hmm. other countries besides Afghanistan, Iraq? Like, were there uh, were there non combat deployments where you were going out and training people? And I'll tell you why I'm asking because some of the poems that you wrote that captured my my eye were uh, the ones on Ovamboland. I don't know if I'm saying that
1: correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's, is, uh, that's where somewhere it, in Africa. Yeah, that's- is that was that with the British Army? No, that's actually to do with, with my dad. When he served in the South African police force, um, there was the border war that was going on at that time. So they um, sent the South African army um, and also the South African police force. And he took part in various operations um, to Uvambuland, which is in Southern Africa. And that's to do with my dad. And yeah, so that, that's a big influence from my dad and my mom. Because my dad's, yeah, he's ex ex Africa police. I my mean, mom, she was a nurse. Uh, my, my grandfather, he was a pilot in the Second World War. So there's a lot of family members that served in some form of sort of um, military or police or nursing um, unit. Okay. So um, I have a
0: feeling, it, 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 I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's been about 16 years since I've read about the border war. And I know for a fact that probably I'm going to estimate 80% of our audience is not going to be a one where do you want to just give a thumbnail sketch of what the border war was about? Um, uh,
1: so The border war was, um, it, it involved um, the South African army and the South African police force. Uh, they were um, asked to, you know, um, get involved in this um issue with various terrorists that infiltrated, you know, um Southern African countries. Um and yeah, my dad, he was the one that 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 took part in in this big operation that goes and it goes back to the nineteen sixties, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so I w I wanna um
0: I wanna read your poem called Ovambaland because oh, sure. I, I think that dovetails nicely with what you're talking about. When you get into the British Army. So you say, I wanted to travel to no man's land and feel the soft white sand under my green boots. I wanted to feel the hot scorching sun on my face and disappear into the African sunset. All I wanted was to fight next to you in Ovambaland. I mean, that's so. I mean, obviously, that speaks to your desire to follow in his footsteps as a cop. But certainly, it seems like you were. There was a part of you that was primed and wanted to be able to share war stories with your dad. Now,
1: well, yeah, I mean, uh, like many veterans, uh, we just don't don't talk. You know, my dad is 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 known to not say much about his past. Like many veterans, you know, we we uh, we can talk about uh, weapon systems, we can talk about tactics, we can talk about ambush tactics um but we don't talk about the big white elephant in the room and um yeah that was um it just yeah a dream to sit down and, and open up and talk and follow his footsteps or you know in the footsteps of my grandfather or my mom the fact that they sort of served and they've done their duty you know so um yeah it's just one of those things where we just don't talk we should but we just don't
0: did you feel, well, let's, let's, let's fast forward. Maybe the first time you had a, a, a tick or, or kinetic action, did you feel afterwards that suddenly you were kind of birds of a feather with your father? Was there a sense of like, Hey, I've joined the legions of those that have actually seen combat now. Was there any sense of kind of that tick that box? Uh, yep. That, that happened now. Now I've, now I qualify.
1: Yeah, I would say after my Afghan, tour, After, you know, uh, leaving uh, Sangan, D.C., in Afghan Helmand province, you know, I would say that was, I knew. I knew, I think, um, why he acted the way he did and still to this day. um, I knew, yeah, that box was ticked. And then ultimately I sort of, you know, became not the same, but whereas a lot of stuff I don't talk about a lot of my past, I don't talk about it with my wife. You know, she she doesn't ask, I don't tell. Uh, she respects that. I probably should share more, but I don't. But yeah, that's the that's the box. That Afghan tour in 2007 is definitely yeah. I I knew, I knew.
0: Has that ever come up? And I ask because I've I've run into this myself. Um, I, I I have tried to talk a lot um, about. Just my experiences, and and because I felt like if I didn't, my wife was going to kill me because she just didn't know where my head was at. Um, I mean, I guess it depends marriage to marriage how much or how little you say. Um, but did you ever find that there were times that you desperately wanted to talk because you felt like I'm misinterpreted? I'm being misinterpreted all the time because you guys, you're you're not you're seeing A and C, but you're missing B. And I can I I need to fill that in because otherwise you're going to get me wrong. Was there ever any sense of that, or is that just a me thing? <laughs>
1: no, no. There's there's been many times where uh, where that was uh, the case. You know, where I feel like yeah, I need to say something. I need to explain. Um, but there's also other times where there was no need to explain. You know, she just knew. Mm. I just look at her and she just she mm. understood. She knows. Uh, she knew when to give him space or when to be there. Or, like I say many times, she knows uh, when to give me a good uh, kick up the arse to say, Nev, get out of that bloody slump, move on. Yeah. And she's very good like that to to pick me up, you know, um, and, and not jump in the hole. Like I do sometimes, you know, when, when she's in a um, bit of a slump or uh, you know, down, you know, I'm, I'm to jump in and <laughs> make the hole deeper, you know, I yeah. need to jump in, and pull out. And she's good that way of giving me a bit of a, a nudge and say, okay, cool. I know that things ain't right, but let's, let's just get you away from this area uh, if, you know, if I feel negative or down, you know, so she knows when to give me the space or uh, when to help. Were you
0: ever able to talk to your dad afterwards? Did he ever uh, ask? Did you ever tell? Was there ever a conversation?
1: There's been a couple, a couple, yeah. It was the one day that they came to visit and uh, we were um, in the kitchen. I was making dinner and yeah, out the blue, we started talking. Um, about, Or he started talking or opening up about certain patrols or events, you know, and, and that will, will always stay with me because it's, it's, only, it's only a handful of times where he's actually open up about things. But not is, is, is it too um, Hollywood
0: for me to say it was almost like he was waiting for you to have those experiences to be able to talk to you?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know. Um, I don't know if he's if he's um afraid or or think, oh shit, he's gonna ask me um or the pressure. Um I mean for us, it's it's easy for us just to sit there, have a couple of drinks, have a couple of beers or some brandy. And and it's it's the quietness that's that I think that will suffice sometimes just sitting yeah. there, you know, and in the nice silence, you know, having a drink together, you know. But um it's it's hard to say. I just I just don't know. So let,
0: let me, uh, this, is my, this is my impression of every South African I've ever met. And you and I have not met face to face. So I'll never, I won't be able to judge, to gauge and see if this is, if I'm painting with too broad a brush by saying this. Um, but when you talk about the silence, that made me think of bonfires that I'd been around with uh, various people, including South Africans, where they had taught me that that's why you always wear a shirt with a pocket so you can put your drink in the pocket of your shirt. <laughs> and, um, and I'd had, I forget what the name of it is, but that bread that you all do where you, where you barbecue the bread and you put it on the bar and it's like, uh, yeah, yeah it's like yeah. a ball of, of, and you, and you put it on there and it was the most unbelievable. I'm a breadophile. I freaking love all kinds of bread, but, um, that bread was unreal. That was absolutely delicious. Anyway. So I have a lot of good memories of sitting there, but what triggered me to thinking all this was when you said the silences. Because um probably the most ubiquitous thing that most veterans flash back to is just sitting around the campfires and just everybody's quiet and you're just gazing into the fire, right? And having yes. your own thoughts yeah. and all. Um so let me use that as a as a launching point to ask you about the writing. Sure. Do you still do you find that you still need to do that, that you need oh. to gaze off and have the thousand yard stare? and kind of gather your thoughts or do you find that your writing starts to do a lot of that for you so your mind gets cleared up a little bit and again i'm being a little autobiographical so you know i'm i'm not trying to mm. do some transference but does that relate or is that a me thing
1: um yeah it does it does. There's times when I'm by myself, the kids have gone to, they've, they've gone to bed. I've got three young kids. So they've gone to bed. My wife's watching TV or she's just asleep. Yeah, and I'll sit there and I'll stare off. Or it could be on the weekend, while you know, I am I'll be on my laptop and or I've got the my notebook and pen. Yeah, I will stare off and then I will ponder and think and those thoughts will will take me back to my childhood or to Afghan and Iraq, you know. Um yeah, totally. Or other than that or it could be a, a trigger, it could be a Music, it could be a, um, mm. a smell of of something, you know, um, um, the heat of of Iraq or um, the stench of of, of the place, um, yeah, or music, um, or having a drink. You know, um, sometimes I could be you know pouring myself a drink, and that could take me back, and that could sort of initiate um, a something, a thought, or a, or a feeling. But yeah, it's definitely sitting down there and think, just being all quiet and and yeah staring off into the distance you know and and then it it will it will trigger something do you find that um
0: well maybe let me ask instead of, instead of diving deeper into that, when did you start writing when did that start become and and why did you start writing was it a tool was it a coping mechanism what was the um, journey with
1: that it started with the dead reckoning collective okay right it started on. And um in 2019 um i've written some stuff in my afghan journal which i've kept with me um, in 2007 but that was just purely initially it started with writing down all the contacts that we had because um, as soon as we got there we were just pouted and attacked every day we basically were defending the base for 20 days straight and i started to write down all the contacts the times the uh if it was small arms mortar rounds um, rpgs i then write that down but the more I did it and then I started to pump in or write down feelings and thoughts emotions and I just started to fill this this journal and then I kept it with me and I literally in the bloody shoebox with old photos in a shoebox wow. packed away and I left it it wasn't until 2019 when I came across I don't remember how but I came across um uh, something on on there. Instagram account where they were um, opening up submissions for the second orthology for, uh, for their book where veterans could submit stuff. And if it's good enough, it's going to be published in their book. I thought it's something clicked. I don't know what it was. There was a connection. And um, I got outside my comfort zone. And I, um, I wrote those three poems. And then it came that day where okay, it was done. And I thought, well, shit, do I click submit? Do I click send? Uh, the email, everything typed up. The attachment was on. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do it. You know? And I clicked send and I left it. And then meanwhile, after that, the year few that followed, um, I started to, to write more, more poems, more poetry, more thoughts and feelings spilling out. And then it was at that stage where another British veteran um, came across my account and then he asked if I want to submit some stuff. For a book that he's going to self publish uh, with, um, with other British veterans. You know? And this was, the,
0: this was Darren Roberts?
1: Yes, yes. Okay, all right. Yes, yeah, that was him, yeah. And then, um, yeah, I submitted stuff and then I again got out of my comfort zone, uh, which I normally will hardly do. You know, I should do more. I should get out my, outside my comfort zone and grow more and do these things. But then that went quiet with dead wrecking there. It wasn't up at all. I think twenty twenty something like that, where the email came out from. um, I think it was from Tyler, said that um, two of my poems um, were going to go into the uh, into the book, and that was just a phenomenal email to read, you know. And um, but yeah, since that initial one, um, I delved more into the past, and I went back to that journal I kept, and and I read it, and that just. There was a, a massive amount of memories that just unleashed. Yeah, I,
0: I don't doubt it. So let me ask about that genesis then. So when when you started writing down every time you guys were hit, yep. um, was it now with the benefit of hindsight, do you think it was a coping mechanism to go, okay, I just need to make record of this. I need to have some way of processing this. And maybe just writing down what actually happened. going could be the best way of processing it. Or was there a sense that you were doing this for posterity? What what, what was the motive behind it when you first started writing the stuff down?
1: Um, well, thinking back, I think it, it was a good um tool to um just to process everything. But back then it was like shit, and you know, it's 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 different, you know, looking at movies and being there for real, having, you know, having an enemy right there attacking us so I thought... I better, you know, lock this down. Because this is this is a in um, a bigger amount of um of rounds coming down our way, you know. And I I think looking back, yeah, it was a, a way of coping with it all. Because, you know, being attacked being a, um, a sitting setting duck, being a target is and having you know those rounds coming your way, it's 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 a feeling hard to to, um, to describe, you know. And so I think for me it was a way of of coping, of locking that down. Um but then it's built into writing down how I felt that particular day, writing it by the sea, yeah, yeah. the valley, because it's a, it's a beautiful area, you know, uh, yeah. it was right next to the same river with beautiful mountains, you know, and it's felt so surreal sitting there and you've got the bloody enemy attacking us yeah. you know, on a daily basis you know, from all directions. Yeah. Talk about ruining a beautiful day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or ruining, ruining some beautiful yeah. scenery. I know. I know. Yeah. That's pretty. So, I want to pick on one thing you said, because um, it's a thought I've had, and you might be articulating it better than I've been able to. but um, the the difference, the delta between Hollywood movies and real life, and that in the moment was am I hearing that right, that there was a part of you that was like, "Oh, bullshit, it's not like this. It's like this." because yeah. now you, now you know it was, so that was part of it as well of what got pen to paper
1: oh definitely definitely you know it's, it's, it's the one thing you don't see or feel within the movies is, is the immense fear It's the fear you feel that feeling of shit i'm not on this tunic on this on this helicopter i'm flying in fuck they're gonna shoot me down um um it's it's that fear that feeling that alertness and uh, the fact that you you don't feel relaxed You've, you're, you you're on alert all the time 24 um, 7 mm-hmm. you train for this you wanted to be there heck i volunteered to be there you know it was a, a mm-hmm. Different from, from the um, Iraq tour. Iraq to has more peacekeeping on the, on, on the two deployments there. The, the Afghan ones from war fighting. you know, you see something, um, you should, uh, you, if you can identify the target, you know where, you take it out, you've got your snipers, you've got your mortar team, you've got your machine gunners, you take it out. But it's that fear, that, that, that feeling that you don't get from watching a movie. You know? um, I think the veterans, the ones that have been there, they would know that feeling, you know, from yeah, that fear. It keeps you alive, you know, you're drilling, pumping, and then your training takes over. How many deployments did you do to Afghanistan? Just the one? Just the one, two to Iraq. And then when I joined the battalion, I went on a residential tour in Northern Ireland. I was there for two years. Wow. And
0: so how was that after Iraq and Afghanistan? How did that well, stack up? What was the, what was the vibe? For you. Well,
1: uh, I went to. I deployed when I joined the battalion in 2004. I went to Northern Ireland. I was there first. I was oh, there, there first. Years. Okay. Yeah, I was right. there first. Uh, but it's funny because um, on the residential tour, we then deployed to Iraq. So we went from one tour onto the next one. Um, yeah, different one. And
0: that, that talk about that. Talk about that that change, uh, because that's that's interesting. You're you're going. And that was going into your peacekeeping mission, right? so you hadn't gone to Afghanistan yeah. yet, so you're really going from the residential tour to the peacekeeping mission. was that an easy transition to make,
1: or was it was it pretty severe uh it was it, it was easy at at that stage yeah. we were pretty sort of switched on uh, trained uh, the uh, I, I think the the tour in northern Ireland you know uh us uh, got us ready for for that that's so what it seemed like yeah it would seem like yeah. it was
0: a good evolution,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a, um, a basic sort of natural step into there because a lot of stuff that we did in Northern Ireland, we basically did the same in in Iraq. You know, when you pull a vehicles, you start your search, you look, you go on vehicle patrols, foot patrols, uh, you do uh, VC uh, uh, checkpoints, um, you do helicopter. You know, where they pick you up and drop you off. Um, so it was a natural transition. You know, uh, we we're all, but I think uh, I think for me it was a bit of an anticlimax. Because before that tour, we watched all these other videos that previous units made mm-hmm. massive contacts uh, and we got there and I was there for six months, and I never fired my my weapon yeah. um, endless, endless um, operations, endless patrols guard i yeah, wanna, it was a an I,
0: I want to ask you about that actually because you know there's been a lot of um poetry that I've come across lately from infantrymen that did not get to deploy, or if they did get to deploy, did not get involved in combat, and the ache and the pain and the resentment uh, and the insecurity sometimes that that breeds. Did you feel that? Did you feel that as a motivating factor for when you got to Afghanistan you're like, oh, finally, all right, now I'm into it. Was there a sense of relief? Was there a sense of satisfaction? that finally you're in the fight and you can say you've been there done that
1: I think personally for me my experience was go to Iraq you, you trained for war you trained for combat you, you trained to close in with the enemy capture or kill regardless of weather season terrain and that doesn't happen you know um, you're like a line in a bloody cage and you want to get out you want to go you want to attack because that's what you train trained for that's yeah. you, I volunteered to go yeah. and that doesn't happen and then Twice. I went back to Iraq in 2006, and that didn't happen, you know. And um, But we, we volunteered, well, the first time, not the second time, you know, but we were told, you're going to go over there, find yeah. your listen to the orders, you go, you get the job done to the best of your ability with what you've got. But with Afghan, it was different. We knew from the onset, we knew it was going to be different because we had smaller teams and units that went there um, the year before. Um, they had massive contacts, you know, um, defending the area. Um, and in, in Iraq, I I'm imagine you guys were in Basra, or in the yeah, south. Uh, yes, okay. Basra Palace. Basra okay. Palace. All right. Yeah. For both deployments. Um, no, the first one was Basra Palace, and the second one was just, um, on a location just further, um, I think, further south.
0: Okay. All right. And so, so yeah, so the the history of Helmand had been pretty well established by the time you guys got there. And you knew yeah. what you were getting into. Um, so, uh, what was when you left Afghanistan,
1: how much longer before you got out of the army? Um, I think another two years. Uh, okay. When I left Afghanistan, something wasn't quite right. I, I, I had no idea what it was. I started to, I think, just drift off, lost motivation. I remember um, I was sort of a reconnaissance platoon because I was part of RICI. When I deployed, went on a run, left the front gates of the camp, and uh, it wasn't—I think it was a couple of minutes into it—and I just stopped, and I thought, "Fuck this!" i and I don't want to do it. And I turned around, and I and I walked back to camp. Uh, and then the following day, my sergeant came over, and yeah, he, he ripped me a new one. He he basically told me, "You know, sort this shit out." Um, um, and then, you know, start paying attention, start bringing your, your part. But I do remember him saying those things. Um, I was respectful, but it just wasn't sinking in. I, I, I couldn't care less. Um, something was up. I'm not sure what it was, but it wasn't um, until one of the different officers came over and says, "Nev, I've got a, a, a posting for you, which you can go and do, uh, which was a two year recruitment uh, posting. Mm. And that I think that was my saving grace. Uh, then I went on and I went to, to once we left because we were based in Cyprus then for for the two years. Oh wow. Yeah. And then that in that two years we done all our deployments to. Uh, we went to Jordan on Exercise. We went to Iraq. We went to Afghan. And then when we went back to London, that's when I did my two year recruiting uh, course. Well, not a course, uh, recruiting um, stint with the with the British Army. And that was your final assignment. That was my final, yeah. That was my final, and so, I knew it was, it was time to you know move on. It's interesting. Um,
0: I I think I was listening to George St. Pierre, uh, the the former UFC champion, um, talk about um, his coach and the advice he had gotten about how he went when he would know to hang up the gloves. And he because he was asking, and he was like, "How do you know?" And he's like, "Yeah, I've been in a lot of wars. I've got. I've been punched a lot." I've had bad times, but I, I, I should I quit now? Is this the sign? And they said, when you get punched and you hit the canvas and that moment when you don't want to get back up, then that's the time to leave. Mm-hmm. And it seems like on your run when suddenly you're like, what, what the hell? Why am I doing this? And, and, and that moment, that, that was your indication then that that seems like that's of, of the same type as what yeah. they were talking about, right? Oh, yeah, totally, man. So, but yet you don't leave, let's call it the military-industrial complex, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, what, what, was, what was your initial move when you left the Army? What was your aspiration? What did you want to do? What did you do?
1: Well, uh, the ironic thing is I told myself I had enough. You know? And even in my journal, um, some of the entries I stated, I had enough. I'm going to move on. Uh, this is not for me. And then it wasn't until my last year within my recruiting stint that my best friend said to me, listen, I'm going to do a close protection course Mm. and I'm going to do private security. Do you want to come with me and and do this course? They've got an open day. Let's go check it out. So I went with them and I was sold. I was like, yep, I want to do this. You know, I gave my deposit for a a position, a place on the course. (laughs) And yeah, long story short, I did that. And I went back to Iraq and I did private security for a couple of years. So
0: I mean, did you find yourself during those years kind of shaking your head, going, I can't believe I came back here? Or let me be blunt, did the money make it worthwhile and you just the thought never crosses your mind? Or did you go, Hey, I've got a second life. I'm feeling good. This is I'm 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 this is feeling like this is my element
1: again. I would say all of the above. Okay. Yeah. It was yeah. All of the above. When I got there, it's like, shit, I'm back here again. You know, that same fear of shit, you know, they can, you know, there's an IED and, but then training kicks in. You're like, shit, you know, is that possible ID on on the road? Is, is that a shooter? Is that vehicle too close? You know, it, it, it kicks in. And you think, ah, oh, the money, the fact that I can, I can. Yeah. You know, yeah. Money. In fact, there's no bullshit. They treat you like an adult. You know, the, you've got your accommodation, you've got your shower, bathroom, you know, um, you've got a cool uniform, you've got the gear, and then you see people with all the gear, no idea. And then you meet all the other different contractors and you meet other South Africans. That's Afrikaans. That they they left South Africa, you know, which is all your ex-police yeah. officers. Yeah. People that deployed at the same time as my dad. They're doing that shit now. Um, people that's um, from New Zealand, Australia, you know, from the UK. And you think, wow, oh, this is my family. Wow. And um, yeah, I was... I loved it. I loved it. It was yeah, professional. Um, everyone was singing off the same song sheet.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it was um, yeah, again, you got through better. There were none of this, none of this bullshit that you get in the army or yeah. that we got an army back yeah. then. You know, like you yeah, go and paint the, the grass green, you know, go and oh, yeah. and yeah. sweep and mop the, the parade square and you think, well it's fucking raining, you know. Um, right. none of that, you know. This is your objective, this is the mission. Um, yeah, I loved it. I love there, it. there is some. It's funny. I, I mean, I can relate to a lot of that.
0: But it's it, uh, what I'm first thinking is my last couple of years. I kept reenlisting for two year stints because I kept deploying. I deployed every year, and I'd always go, "Yeah, I'm done." And then I'd come back, sit around for a little bit. And go, No, no, no. Okay, I'll re up for another two years. Yeah, as long as you can get me out on other deployments, yeah, I'll I'll go back for more. But there is. But I hated garrison. I was I was guard, so for me, I didn't have garrison time. And I didn't want to stick around in the States. I was like, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to do this, push me back out. Let me take another deployment mm-hmm. then. Um, because there is something, I mean, obviously for the military, the military is still going to be the military. still going to deal with stupidity. But there is something about the big boy rules of going, hey, if it's an urgent situation, because it is a combat zone, mm-hmm. the stupidity tends to, can, not always, but it, it can lessen an awful lot. And some of the spit and polish stuff and some of the um, abject stupidity of, you know, break a big rock into small rocks or something. That kind of tends to go away because mm-hmm. there is a bit more of an urgent situation. So I I can see that. Um, how were you feeling? And I'm, I don't want to play. I feel like I'm Oprah here a little bit, and I don't mean to do this to you, but um, I feel like I also should ask mentally. How did you feel? Um, Where it seems like this was a lot of you stress, a lot of a lot of positivity, a lot of like good energy like you're in your element you're really finding your way were there um is that the right picture or were you going um hey my half-life is burning out i can't keep i can't stay on this treadmill indefinitely
1: well at that stage i felt like i was on top of the world um i was on the top of my game um no mental health issues whatsoever i was happy um i had a um, not, not a head, I've got a, a beautiful wife. I mean, at that stage, because I met my wife in my in last year in, 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 the, in the army and, um, in the you know, great support. Mm. I was on top of the world, man. I was invincible, you know,
0: bulletproof, you know? So things like this are why that shoebox with everything from Sangin kind of stayed in the closet, right? It, you know, there's no need to look at it. You're not, no, you know, none, no none. nostalgia for it or anything like that. What makes you end your time as a contractor?
1: Well, I would say it started with. What I mean? It started with the. Um, it was this card call. I was sitting in Baghdad in the Green Zone, and uh, with my my wife, and she held this little stick thing in front of the camera. You know, so the reception wasn't too good, and she held it in front. I thought, what the hell is the stick? And she said, "Nev, I'm I'm pregnant." You know, like, whoa, you know, yeah. and um, I think that was, and I knew that was the, you know the the motivation to or the message to all the or the to to say listen yeah it's probably best to yeah. you know pack it up eventually you know and and, and I decided we, we, we both did it was probably the best thing to do because so. luckily I went home for um for the birth of of our first child so the company flew me out on leave I was there and then I went back and done a few more sort of um, stints and I thought oh, now it's time to yeah back up in so um I, I think
0: I think this is a Jerry Seinfeld joke if I, if I remember right, but he he had a joke about um marriage, and he said marriage is is um i'm I'm probably gonna butcher this, but it's generally like you know, the man and woman are driving on the road and they keep seeing an exit sign, you know, an exit sign pops up, and it says, you know gas, food, lodging' And the woman's like, let's get off. That's all you need. Gas, food, lodging. Everything's right here. And the guy's like, no, no, no. I can make one more exit. I can make one more exit. And you just keep going. And I feel like that's a good parallel for a lot of military careers that we constantly go, well, no, one more exit, one more. Yeah, yeah. No, I know I got gas, food, lodging right there, but let me do one more exit. (laughs) Did you kind of feel that way? Were you like, hey, I think think I've played this out and I've really gotten all the exits um, that I could possibly get. Or was there ever a feeling that, yeah, I think I could have done a little bit more? Was there anything, any box left to tick, any sense of adventure, any sense of wonderlust still?
1: Yeah, I think um, hindsight—I I would have loved to have you know stayed on, you know, do more. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably best that I didn't, you know, because I've got three young kids now, and I'm here for the birthdays, I'm here for Christmas, I'm here for New Year, I'm here for the school projects. I'm mean, here for, for their sporting events, you know. But then the other side thinks, shit, man, if you know, you could have been much higher up. You could have yeah. been a like contract manager. You could have been, yeah. you know, in the office looking after the teams and getting all the money. And um, But that sort of fizzled away, you know, looking back and, you know, I'm just, I think, blessed that I did come back and, I, and I've got these, you know, beautiful young kids and, and a, an amazing wife. Well, and and I mean
0: let's not de-emphasize probably the most remarkable or unique thing about that. You have one wife, <laughs> I mean, you, you've done one marriage I and mean, that's right. rare. And that's rare in, in that life when you've been pushing out so much. Um, I mean, I was just talking to a buddy the other day and I mean, a mutual friend of ours just went back to Iraq because his third marriage just went down the tubes and it's like, yeah, I'll go back to Iraq. Then that's what I do. I just keep pushing out. Um, So I mean, there's got to be a. I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it seems like there'd be an immense sense of pride and satisfaction that, you know, you you've managed something that very few people in our line of work managed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it takes it takes hard work. Like I said, I'm I'm, I'm happy that we met when I did, you know, because it would have been a it would have been a lot of strain on the marriage if it was during my deployments, because I've seen people. You know, friends, they would deploy and be away from their wife and their, and their kids, and I'm like, but I mean, that's that looks like a lot of work, a lot of pressure." yeah You yeah. don't see them, you know, it's difficult, you know. Um, but yeah, it takes it's, it's a lot of work. It takes you know, from both sides, you know, you have to. It's a team effort. Yeah, it's, it's not just a straightforward to walk in and it's all sunshine and roses. It's 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 not. It takes hard work. You know, you've got your bad days, you've got your good days. Um, but yeah it's something i can be proud of that i've um you know it's it's still going strong it's 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 still good
0: and yeah. and and talk about the transition because obviously that's something that every vet i think struggles with to one degree or another so as you suddenly transition to a civilian um and a and not even a military contractor but like a civilian civilian um Well, I guess first, let's just talk practically. Did you just end up getting civilian jobs? Were you able to live off disability or any sort of retirement? What was uh, you know? Did you did you have the external pressure of work that suddenly either gave you focus or detracted from it?
1: Well, it was the work here because when I told my wife, "Listen, I'm going to do this private security," she said, "Great stuff." Um, She's then because they were still in London. She said, "Okay, cool." She's gonna. Mm. Um, go back home to New Zealand because she's she's from from oh, here from New Zealand, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And at that stage, we we made the the choice to make New Zealand our home. It was either going to be you know South Africa or the UK. And um, so I did my in close protection. I came over, and yeah, it was the, the the struggle to find something that would suit me. But I had to put the, my pride in my pocket and um, and go look for your basic you know. Entry um, and um, yeah, I got a job as a, um, as a security guard um, at the local hospital where my wife works. Um, I hate it every day, to be honest. You know, in this team, sure. it's low level security where you're sure. there to bloody guard a building infrastructure, you're there to look after the patients, um, the staff, you know, and the visitors. And I hate it every day, but you know, I was professional. I thought it's a job I'm going to do my best I can. And um yeah, it was it was nothing mental health, no mental health issues, no stress, no no thoughts of the past. It was just basically I need to get a job, I need to, I've got a young kid, yeah, my my wife, you know, that's the the priority and work from there. But yeah, it was just getting the job that was struggle. That's the biggest part. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um so so then the writing doesn't really start kicking off until twenty nineteen. Correct. Yeah. And um, at that point, do you it, it seems like and I'm, I'm basing this purely off your Instagram but it seems like that kind of started a fire that just keeps on going and going and going, right? That now you're just consistently churning out stuff, and um, you have three compilations that did you help I, I don't know if you helped Darren Roberts put them together, but three compilations that came out um, yeah. of your work, right? so so suddenly everything was so it has this how much of your bandwidth does the writing take up is it something where you're now identifying yourself more and more as a writer a poet um yeah talk about that and what what that's meant to you and what what that looks like in your life how that stacks with all your other priorities
1: well for me it's my saving grace it's my area where i can go and reflect and work on it just it, it takes effort you have to you know if you want to be good at it um I have to sit there, I have to read, I have to write. I'm I'm very much new into this. And what I've learned that um, even if I miss a couple of days or week of not putting anything on paper or on my laptop, I feel a bit rusty, you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it's been it was yeah, that that initial submission to, you know, Keith and Tyler from Dead Rick Ring, Dead and Collective, it was yeah, the floodgates and it's been going strong since, but purely because I put an effort, I I sit here in, in a right, and I learn from my mistakes, whether it be grammar, spelling, um, too much, um, too much of a certain word, or um it's it's helping me and it's guiding me to to be a better person. It it helps with my you know issues from the past, um, being a, a better partner, a better dad, a better husband. Um, it, it definitely helps hell of a lot and with, with Darren with his stuff uh, he actually approached me and asked if we want to you know submit a few things which i did then um I just left it with him he was he's the main author of, of of the whole book you know so I think in the first one it was about seven British veterans that submitted um stuff you know or words and within and that first one I was the only one that submitted um poetry the rest um is all. Dits and stories and, and, and jokes and and so forth, you know. And with the second one, it's it's all poetry, you know. But again, I just submit stuff to him, and and he works his magic. Gear, but then he, he doesn't sit there and, and edit anything um, as it is. So if there's grammar issues, spelling mistakes, uh, it will show in the book, mm. you know. And I think with mine, it's maybe one or two, and then. But that's how I learn. How I learn. It's like, oh shit, okay, cool. Change this and and and, and try this. But, um, with- so he's giving you the sketchbook, yeah. essentially, to
0: to work yeah, it yeah. out and 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 to to get the platform up and just be able to have that voice. I think that first one, that was the first one, was "Good Soldiers mm-hmm. Don't Cry," right? Was that the uh, no. first one,
1: or was no, it "Good Soldiers Don't Cry"? That's the last one. The first one was "Sweeping Leaves in the Wind." Sweeping leaves in the wind. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all the proceeds of all all three books goes uh, goes to a, a local, I think, uh, charity within the UK to help, you know, bridge of entrance, you know. So. And we'll I'm have links. Yeah, we'll yeah. put the links in the show notes as well because people should check that out.
0: And I think if I'm if I'm remember right, "Sweeping Leaves in the Wind" also featured Dan McDonough, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And I'm putting you on the I'm spot sure. by asking you, but uh, yeah, anyway, because he writes, he he. You know, we use we have his poetry on a uh, Savage Wonder on the literary blog, okay? Um, and we feature his stuff. And and I saw he was on there. Of course, now we'll have your stuff on there as well too. Uh, If you don't object, uh, because I want to, I want to feature that stuff. So, um, and it's funny, uh, you know, I'm, I've become aware, thank you to social media, uh, but I've become aware more and more of um, the veteran artistic projects happening in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and all that. Um, So I feel like I should ask, and it's kind of a leading question. what's the what's your what's your point of view on being a five eyes member of the coalition versus being an American vet? Is it kind of like, hey, motherfuckers, remember we were over there too? Like, you know, remember us. Is, is there any sense of that? Is there any sense of um feeling like sometimes your experience isn't taken into account or it's you know, there hasn't been the Hollywood treatment of it yet, or what what is that? What's what's your takeaway on your veteran status in in the eyes of the world or or in your own mind? Based you know, on that? For,
1: uh, for me, I'm just happy that you know I've um, to be here. Uh, yeah, I've been to places. Um, I've, I've experienced it. You know, um, I'm not particularly bothered to be honest. You know, um, mm. I'm just going to focus on me, focus on my family, focus on my writing. But I'm not particularly uh, too bothered. Um, in, record, in that regards, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. I mean, it always seems that way. I'm I'm just asking, and I'm I'm not doing it to start shit, but <laughs> just so it always crossed my <laughs> mind. I was like, I was like, uh, you know, it, it's yeah, And I was thinking, I'll tell you when I thought of it when with the Afghan pullout. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I reconnected with uh, a bunch of different NATO folks that I'd known, and um, you know, some Portuguese, some Spaniards, and it was. And there was a sense of, um, hey, fucking America, you guys just did whatever the hell you wanted. What what the hell about us? And you know, you know, what about our feelings? And and I'm glibly saying that, but I get it, and that makes sense to me. So I always kind of, I don't know, I kind of wondered if that's just me projecting that onto people, or if there's some of that that's actually in people's minds.
1: Well, I think with the with the Afghan withdrawal, you know, it was, I believe, yeah, I, I, I. we at at that particular time, when I say we, our record platoon unit, fusiliers, we we did the best that we could with what we had at that particular time, you know. Um I think back in, the, in in my first Iraq tour, the naive me thought, yeah, you know, we're doing good for the for the local people, you know, we're helping. Um we we're giving water to the kids, we're there to to make a big difference. And thinking back, probably we didn't. Um, maybe for that short time, mm-hmm. but yeah, with with the withdrawal, yeah, that was a big, um, yeah, it's 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 it, it was hard to watch. You know, you, you fought these bloody um, Taliban, where a lot of times you couldn't see them, but you could hear them, and you could and and, and uh, the fact that they they were so you know so good with their tactics and all that, but and then now they're in control. And it just yeah, it's it's a bit of a like kicking the balls man um has that fueled
0: any anything creatively for you has there been any sense of like hey i i want to dedicate some bandwidth of my writing to that or is it just kind of um not you know and it just yeah. hasn't registered
1: enough you know to be honest yeah it did for, for a while it did um still i mean still it, it does where i don't want to just purely forget and, and um, forget that what we went through and, and the blokes that we lost, you know. it's, it's you know, they. Um, I I a lot of times, I feel like I have to put it on paper to um, to remember myself, you know, where it came from, what we've been through, you know, because we're now part of history, you know, whether it be yeah. British, American, Australian, Kiwis, you know, we're part of history. We just, you know, we fought hard for for that area, for that small patch of ground in Sagan. You know for each other it wasn't for queen it wasn't for country it was for for the dude next to me yeah. you know on the on the um, machine gun that's and for those that that died there um for me it's important to to make sure that name lives on that it's not it wasn't done it wasn't in in, in vain it was so that of they they will be remembered you know so yeah a lot of it filled A lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings, a lot of times when I went back to the journal, reading through it, you know, and that that sparked a a lot of different emotions. Do you feel like you're writing for
0: posterity now that you're writing not just for yourself, not just to get your own thoughts out, but that that you really want to capture some emotions that maybe others haven't recorded and really make sure that it's out there and that you made that mark? Um, whether it's something your kids could read, whether it's something that just Joe civilian could read at some point, is there any sense of that? You know, a
1: lot of times when I do put stuff out there, um, there there is a fear that will get back to me, and then they would comment and say um, thank you uh, mm-hmm. for sharing it, or they might say you know, it's it really helped me, or they can relate. Um, a lot of times when I do write it, it's it's other. It's not so much for me. I just it's things that I've experienced that I have to get on paper. Mm-hmm. get out there. So eventually, if it's published, if and when, then it's something my kids can read, you know, because I know yeah. what it feels like when you sit there with someone and they don't talk, you know, and you want them to say something, you want them to, to open up and they don't, you know, and for me, I don't want my son or my two daughters to to go through that, you know. Yeah. Hey, man, I love my mom to bits, I love my dad, you know, um, but there's some, you know, I, w- I want him to open up
0: Yeah,
1: and um, I want my son to be able to one day when it's old enough to understand and read and say, "Yeah, I, I know, I understand." You know, because it's, it's, it's on paper, whether it be a novel, whether it be a, a poetry. You know, but a lot of times when I put it down is it's it's a need that I, I have to put it out there. You know, if the flight are open. that it's yeah. I, I have to but do it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a
0: necessity. So I ask this often with poets. Um, when they're on the show, because as somebody that's dabbled with poetry myself, I'm kind of interested in how other people approach it. Do you consider yourself a student of poetry? Do you, do you study poetry? Have you taken multiple workshops on poetry? Have you read literature about, you know, feet in a verse and rhyming schemes and all that, like how much of a student of poetry do you consider yourself to be?
1: Well, I think it was up until, um, uh, recently when I started to look into it and study more and learn more, you know, um where I realized hang on, a lot of people, you know, they're reading my my work, you know. If I want to be good at it, you know, if I want to make an impact, um, I need to look into it, I need to go and study it, you know. But when I submitted my stuff to to Keith and Tyler, none of it. It was just basically what I felt. I thought I'm gonna put it on paper, do a bit of a spell check, put it on Grammarly, and <laughs> um, the one side you can do it, yeah. make sure it's all legit, it's all good um and do spell check again and again i thought okay cool click send done but then um the more i put stuff out there and then i read it afterwards and i thought oh shit there's there's, this it doesn't make sense Well, this is wrong or this Uh, Mm -hmm. and then i thought hang on you know um then i started to you know um study more look into it learn more and and i started to look into what others do and um like the likes of, um of Reckoning Collective, they've been a, a massive help in the sense of um, putting information out there, you know, um, information about previous um, poets, uh, rights, and so forth, and courses. Um, been a massive help. And yeah, it wasn't until recently and I thought, hang on, you know, I need to look into it. I need to. But again, it's because I want to. Not because yeah, sure, I'm, sure. I'm when you do
0: write, how do you, um, first, is there what's your routine? Is there a time of day that you like to write? Are there times where you definitely cannot write and you're like, yeah, this, I, I mornings are not going to ever work for me. Uh, you know, what, what's your battle rhythm when it comes to. Writing? And I, w- I would say
1: in the evenings when it's nice and quiet, you know, when the kids, they ain't big. Cause I've got three young kids, you know, and they, yeah. they, they need that, that stimulus of um, getting outside, you know, um, whether it be on the playground, on the field, doing something, they, they need that. And then in the evening I've got a bit of a, um, Routine where, when I do have the time, I can sit down, pour myself a drink, and then just reflect and and just put um, thoughts on paper or do a few, um, a few poems, write them down, see what I think. And uh, but there's also been times where it could be a weekend, and then something triggers a memory, a feeling, and then I just I have to sit down, I have to, and then amongst all the the busyness of that day, then I could knock out. Uh, a poem or, or thoughts on, on, on a paper. It could be maybe music, could be, uh, again, a, sight, a smell, could be uh, something that I, that I picked up on that day. It could be a word, and that's triggered something. And then, again, in that area, if it's busy, I can I can put that to paper. But predominantly, if it's, if it's quiet, because I've got a busy routine after family, and, and so I would say weekends or, or um, late evenings. Do you have a
0: journal? Or anything that you keep with you, just to kind yes. of make a note. So you, if you can't write it right then, it's
1: like hey, note to self. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Always. yeah. I've got. I've got a journal now. I've got a little notebook or on, on my phone. Um, yeah. If there's a, uh, I might read a, someone else's um, stuff um, or I, I hear something or a lyric a music and notes will set uh, will set something off. Then there's a trigger and i feel like, yeah, you know, and then I will then write that down. And from that one word or from the song, from the beat, it just it's, it's as if I'm in a trance where it's, it's triggered something, that feeling, something that occurred in 2007 or something that occurred in 2005 or 2003 or even earlier in, in my life. You know, watching my dad go away on his operational tour, um, being there with my mom, you know, raising me while my dad's away. And then she's, uh, well, she, at um, the times that we spend alone, it could be, you know, um, an 80s series to be watched together and then I might uh, watch an episode of it and then that triggered something and then I might write something about that experience with my mom and I, just being the, the two of us when my dad's away on the on, on tour. It's, it's
0: interesting to me. The thing I keep coming back to as you talk, especially about um, South Africa and your parents, is how if that was all you had done, if you'd never gone off and joined the British Army and all that, there's so much. There's still so much rich subject matter right there. Um, <laughs> that seems like it's to mine. Um, that you you've um, I don't know if I, I guess blessed is the right word, but you you've you've blessed or you've been blessed, or at least you've sought out a series of of lives that are eminently exploitable for literature um, mm-hmm. for probably you know as long as you want to write about them, um, which is a great problem for I think any writer to find themselves in. Do you ever force yourself to write? Are there, are you disciplined about going, yeah, I'm going to write every day and I don't care if I'm not feeling it today. I'm still going to sit down and even if it's just staring at the computer for five minutes, is is do you do that or do you wait for the inspiration to strike?
1: Well, I would say both. There's been times where I would follow a certain group um and they would have a writing prompt. And mm-hmm. the day working collective, they've, you know, they've they've done it a few times, you know, and and that's that's helped me a lot. There'll be times I would sit down there and then they would, you know, put up a, a writing prompt for this day, and they might say, uh, write something about this photo or write something about what's with experience. And then, yeah, I force myself to sit down there and write. And then if I'm not happy with that particular bit, I will then rewrite it and then go back and do it over and over. And, but there will be other times where I, uh, I feel I might be at home in the evening and then I want to write something down. And I, I would sit there behind the laptop and then I would have one line or one word and then – I, I then I just stop. I struggle. I think, okay, I can't do it. I, I've tried. And then, but it, it's, it's some way, yeah, if it's a writing prompt, if there's a goal, it's, it's, it's like being back in the army where, uh, they've got, okay, this is your objective. You need to go and get this done. You know, um, whether you like it or not, you know, you've right. been, you know, right. you've been told to get it done. And it's the same with some of the writing prompts, you know, where it, it definitely helps where they put it out there. And I'm going to make a, a, an effort to, to get it done, to write it. You
0: know? um, when, when do you know that a poem's done for you? What's your criteria? I know it's kind of like asking a cat how it walks because it's like, well, I don't know. I'm just moving my legs. But you know, um,
1: is, is it a conscious choice as to when you know it's done or is it a gut thing? It's a gut feeling. It's a gut feeling. Definitely a gut feeling. I might sit there. I'll go over it. You know, I've done my spell check. I've done my grammar. done everything. It feels good. Yeah, I'm going to put it out. Hmm. But then there's there's be a few I'll put it out there for oh, not shit. Sure. I'll just you know delete it, take it off. Yeah, you know, yeah, delete it all, put it away somewhere. So I'm I'm gonna ask you a question that uh may,
0: maybe this makes sense, maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm revealing too much about myself by asking it. But yeah. is is there ever a sense before you put something out? Is there a person, not even the same person every time, but just is there um sometimes somebody where you're like what if this person reads that? Not because it's about them necessarily, but just um <laughs> you know, just you, 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 is, do you have that? Do you have something where you're yeah. like, yeah, is that kind of yeah. does that kind of become part of your criteria of when you're gonna push it out there? That it, oh yeah, oh, it's yeah this always, person would like it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The the insecure, the the introvert, the the shy, you know, that's that I try to, you know, press down and, and not escape with the thing, oh shit, what if my dad reads it, mm. and you know, and he's now on Instagram. Why, well, shit! What if my mom reads it? You know, I'm like, oh shit! No, she she's gonna flip. You know, she, she's gonna be yeah. why, am, why are they swearing or what does this mean? You know, or um, what if my wife reads it? You know, so that 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 does pop in. Yeah,
0: you know? yeah. So like,
1: but then I need to get out of my comfort zone because if, if I'm in my comfort zone, I'm not gonna submit. It. I'm not gonna yeah. click. Yeah. Scenes and and it's not going to happen, and I won't be able to write, and I'm not going to develop and improve, you know, and that's that's how it's going to fade away. So I need to get out of my comfort zone. I need to get it uncomfortable and put it out there. But there's stuff I put out there's other stuff that I I haven't, you know, um, for obvious reasons um, that I at this stage can't. Um, but yeah, Why? Because it's still it's still undercooked, or um, it's. Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm currently, you know, I've, I've got a, um, the book deal with dead ringing, dead reckoning collective. So I'm working on some stuff okay. with them and I don't want to put it out just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other stuff that I thought nah, I just can't put it out or I'm not happy with it or I, I, I might, I might have a a, a poem out there on, on paper that I want to submit then. I think, oh, what if that person reads it, what are they gonna think? Then I started to worry and and have and anxiety about what they might think. You know, but yeah. then, not some sort of thing. They probably don't care, or they probably don't read it, or they're probably not on social media.
0: Right, right. No, yeah? do you find that it's helpful to think that way though, just for your own editing purposes? Not 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 for the neuroses that oh, if somebody reads this, they're gonna what are they gonna think? But more. That if I if I go through that mental exercise of hey what if they read this it helps me improve the piece it actually helps me go oh shit you know
1: something I would make sure I want to make sure this gets communicated or something is there any of that yeah yeah especially with the spelling and grammar and the message you know I uh-huh. might mm. every, everything set up good to go and I think oh no let me just go over it again for the tenth time and then I pick up some stuff and I'm like, oh shit you know okay it doesn't make sense this you is know? not right it doesn't feel right and then I would then. You know um take it off and then rerun it all from that something else might develop you know and then I might sort of park that or delete it and then start something new and then they would get traction and, and that could be a, a, a good piece yeah but that's that happened uh, quite a few times
0: so it sounds like you're a kind of writer who does like your drafts like that you I mean, how often do you have a piece that the flash to bang is like that that you're just first draft and you're like yep, that's it. Does that happen a lot
1: for you, yeah. or are you somebody that needs to go through it you know, there's 10, a few. ten there's times? There's a few, yeah. Okay. Like, totally, there's, uh, there's been a few that I'm totally happy with, You know, put it out there. But then I could be happy with it, and then it gets no traction or no comments. Uh, or, I mean, I'm not big on putting stuff out there. I'm not putting it out there to get all the likes or getting people to, you know, oh, Nev, you're great. You know, this is phenomenal. No, right, it's, right. You know, it's, a shit, but, it's a good trial
0: balloon. It's a good way just yeah, to gauge
1: yourself, yeah. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But then it, there's other other ones that I might put out there and I think I, I don't I don't like. It. I don't, you know, I'm I'm gonna put it out there. Um, and then it gets a lot of traction where people might comment say, oh no, if I I feel the same, I can relate, you know, this has helped me. And, and and then I'm just blown away. Cause I don't know write it. I didn't put it out there for that specific reason. You know, yeah. I initially thought it's a cracker shed, it's it shouldn't be out there. It doesn't feel right. My right. gut and feeling tells me, take it off. Delete it. Take the photo right. off.
0: No yeah, one wants yeah, to yeah. Remote,
1: remote on there. You know, take that shit off. And then I get someone that, that sent me a private message saying, I can relate. You know, I can yeah. feel it. Thank yeah. you. It goes my
0: mind. Have you ever released anything without editing from your journal? From the mm. one you have in Afghanistan? Kind of
1: um, maybe a couple, yeah. So but they worked. Were, So some of them yeah. worked. Yeah. Yeah, some of them did, yeah. Um but again with the journal, uh, everything was done in Afrikaans. And um initially, like I said, it was just down to, yeah, um, I've got I've got down the date, the time, the day, and then yeah, contact at four o'clock in the morning, RPG, um, another contact at I don't know, 10 past four, and then but then as time went on, more thoughts, more feelings. Right. Right. I went over it the other day one long piece, but just about the scenery. The fact yeah. that we're in this howl hole, we're getting attacked every day, but this beautiful sunrise, beautiful sunset. One of the yeah. poems um, was about the South African, uh, not South African, the uh, Sangha Sunset. Um, and that's. I'm trying to think uh, if that I was one of the, the ones I took. Yeah, no, I
0: remember, I remember reading that one. It was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so you translated it from Africans then.
1: Yeah, so I would then put it into um, into English or whilst reading that, something else might spark. And then I would then yeah. put that in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a nice poem. I mean,
0: not, not to sound too English-centric, but why did you write it originally in Afrikaans? Was there a sense that I don't want anyone else to read this, so I'm going to write it in Afrikaans? So if anybody <laughs> yeah. stumbles across it, I'm not going to hear about it from a bunch of dude yeah, dudes yeah, with.
1: yeah. It was purely you, you, your infantry. You don't want them to see. Oh no, he's writing down about his thoughts and feelings. Now not right. just another one. You know, I'll never read right. animals, You know, and you don't want them to read. Back then, you must. Like, oh shit! You know, he's, he's writing poetry, or he's writing his thoughts about the sunset. You know, or he's writing about missing his mom. You know, so I'll write that down and close it, and then put him in my, in my pockets. You know, I don't want to show it. You know, there's. There's only a couple, a handful of people that seen it, you know, um, and um, still a lot of the my mates, uh, blacks that I deploy with, don't know that I I write poetry. You know, it was it was back thing. It wasn't a yeah. a, a, a thing. You know, you're there to to you know to fight. You know, you combat, who um, are man. You're not there to play, yeah. or write poetry. You know, but if you look back to the first and second world war, a lot of the famous English poets, you know, they were on the front line. You know. Um, and I, th- I, I think that's. I, I mean,
0: I don't know, but my my sense is that that's changing, um, because I think that's the veteran writing mind. community is growing, and I think it was. I, I've said this before. I think on the show, but um, I, I think that was the famous line about Sheikh Guevara's fighters. They said if they're not fighting, they're writing. They'd all have journals, and they'd all be writing all the time. <laughs> um, and and I feel like you, like the NATO and Five Eyes community. Uh, a lot of soldiers are doing that now. And, you know, especially I, this is a hypothesis. I, I don't have a lot of proof of this, but my I, I feel like after with Afghanistan wrapping up in a sense that the GWAT is kind of coming to a close, which I'll just throw out there. I don't believe it is, but be that as it may. Um, I think with the those theaters closing up, uh, people are becoming in, increasingly reflective. And that's leading to a lot more writing. I, again, I'm, this is uh, that's just my hypothesis. I don't know that that's actually true, but that's the feeling I get. Um, so I, I feel like maybe, uh, who knows, in 10, 15 years, infantrymen might be like, yeah, sure, of course, I'm going to write down my thoughts at the end of the day. And you know, that's just what you do. It's part of your battle rhythm or something. I, I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of throwing that out there. Maybe it's wishful thinking. I don't know. Um I should have asked this right up front, and I'm kicking myself for not having done it. So I'll ask it now. Why did you gravitate towards poetry? And I want to also look at it from the point of view that you were writing in Afrikaans. So obviously, you know, poetry has a lot of rhythm in it. It has rhyme in it sometimes. So if you're writing it in a language, then now you're translating. Um, Why poetry? And you know, is is that always the medium that you see yourself writing in, or do you think that could transmorph into another medium at some point? Whether it be um, or
1: I definitely wanted to um, to move on from from poetry into something else, maybe novels. You know, yeah. um, but before that happens, um, I need to be really good. I need to be comfortable. I need to study more, uh, learn more. Um, what with, with poetry is just—it's it, a something. There was a click. Something connects. Something. Yeah, um, it, there was a, a connection that it works. I think also by looking at novels, I think back then, uh, shit, maybe it looks too difficult, too hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough, so I'm going to steer away from that. You know, the, you know the, the, um, I, I don't have enough confidence, I believe, back then to, to steer for that. Or, but then looking at my, at my journal, a lot of it was just basically an entry on how I felt that, that particular day. Like, or, I, or I've written maybe something about a, or, um, the sunset or how mm-hmm. I felt. And then from that, uh, my poetry developed. But I think for, uh, for poetry, it felt comfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And manageable, right? Yeah. It's not
0: intimidating like a novel where you're like, oh, yeah, shit, yeah, i got to come up with narrative. Yeah, I yeah. just
1: purely to um, intimidating, you know, looking back, thinking, oh, it's, I, now I want to eventually transverse or move into that direction. Um, Back then, when I started with it, I thought, no, it's a, that, that that's. I'll put that in, in a hard basket, and oh, maybe not, you know. And then, who knows, man? But yeah, it's. I definitely want to move on and, and, and um, attack something else, and maybe a novel, or maybe write something about South Africa, maybe about my dad and my mom in in, in that environment, you know, because there's so much that I can write about.
0: Africa in the 1980s and 1990s, to me, um, especially parts of it. Whether it's Angola, well, I guess if you go back to the seventies, Rhodesia, all that—that yeah. that to me is unbelievably fascinating. I think I think there's so many cool things, and for you having, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot more context and a lot more knowledge of it than than certainly than I, and certainly than most people, I, I can't imagine. I, I have to imagine there's amazing stories that could come out of there, um, and because I, I feel like it is a very undermined. Those are a lot of undermined subject matters, you know. Mm-hmm. That's not things that a lot of people have written about. Certainly, certainly in the American consciousness, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that'd be unbelievably interesting to hear. I want to make sure we just give a plug to all your um, all your work. To "Good Soldiers Don't Cry," "Sweeping Leaves in the Wind," "Alone in a Crowded Room," all that work that Darren Roberts put out in the Veteran Collective. Uh, Listen, dude, you've been amazingly generous with your time, and this is—it's been a real pleasure to talk. And I can't wait for your book to come out for through DRC. Um, yes. We'll have you back on the show when it comes out, so we make sure we plug that as well. Awesome. But um,
1: this was a blast, man. No, thank you, thank you for you for your time. Um, it's it's been awesome. It's been awesome. Yeah, so thank you, thank you so much. Well, to be continued.
0: That was the savage wonder of Neville Johnson. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists, and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. As always, you can check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. I'll give you a little spoiler. There's not a ton going on with us right now because until April, we're pausing all live shows. Um, No, not because of COVID, although that doesn't hurt but mostly because we are busy reading all of our play submissions from our inaugural playwriting competitions, and we are busy judging them and critiquing them and giving feedback and all that, and that takes a minute. So we needed to take the winter off to do that, but we certainly have a ton of content that we're still pushing out, um, playwriting prompts, exercises, and all that, because we do want to create our cadre of veteran playwrights. So if you like the written word, If you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder literary blog at savagewonder.substack.com or just go to vetrep.org, go to the now playing tab, scroll down, and you will see the options to subscribe to the literary blog. If you go to vetrep.org and go to the now playing tab, you will also see how to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, um, which since you're listening to it, you really probably should have. And um, since you're listening to it, if you want to give us a review, we would love that. We love criticism. We love feedback. Uh, If you could attach it to five stars, if you're doing this on iTunes, that would be dynamite because that sadly does matter. Um, Feedback isn't just great for iTunes, but also um, on social. Hit us up. You can always find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Veterans Repertory Theater. And let us know uh, what you'd like to see. Um, we we always love suggestions too. If people have actors, directors, writers in mind, steer them towards us. Um, you know, that's always fun to hear who you guys would like to see. And uh, certainly, as the podcast grows and as we start to open up some uh, audio plays and all, um, it's great to know what you guys are up for, what kind of genres you want to um, hear what kind of stories you want to hear about. Um, that's always fun stuff. So, veteran Veterans Repertory Theater, at Veterans Repertory Theater. I always forget to put the at there. But anyway, at Veterans Repertory Theater on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, at Vet Rep Theater on Twitter. And I forgot I need to say, since nobody knows how to spell repertory, it's uh, if you're on Facebook or Instagram and you're trying to find us, it's at Veterans, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, Theater at Veterans Repertory Theater. Of course, if you want to submit your work to Vet Rep or to our literary blog for that matter, again, go to vetrep.org, go to the submissions tab, and it will have all the information, all the fine print that you need to submit your work wherever you would like it sent. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.